Last week as we began uh, looking at chapter 2, or furthering our study really of chapter 2, I reminded us of something that I want to remind us of again tonight, and that is this, that something you and I cannot afford afford to do as we go through the book of Hebrews is to read this from a Gentile's perspective some 2,000 years removed from the writing of this letter, okay? Many things have happened in 2,000 years. Our understanding is much greater in the last 2,000 years than what it was back in the day in which the recipients were receiving this letter and uh, re uh, rehearsing this information for the first time. And so we have to be very careful to not be critical. We have to be very careful to not be of the mindset of, of something like this. Well, why didn't they just? Or how could they not? Because sometimes it is easy for us to be critical of other people, is it not? And so we have to be careful of that. We have to guard against it. And so last week, as we continued and looked down through verse number 9, we talked about why Jesus came. And the mind of a Jew who had been stooped in their law and the religious acts for so many years, in the mind of a Jew, they were waiting for a deliverer. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for someone to set them free from the oppression they were under by way of the hands of the Roman uh, government and the Roman nation. And so for them, it made no sense to hear the message that the Messiah had come in the form of a baby and, and that the only thing that he accomplished on this earth was to eventually die on the cross. That made no sense whatsoever. But what the writer reminded them of was this, is that in verse number 9, that he came by the grace of God, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And so what the writer was trying to remind them of was this, is that Christ came to die on the cross so that spiritually he could take the place for them in their spiritual lives so that he in his physical death could taste the spiritual death for every man. And I tried to remind us again last week that there are many people who still don't know why Jesus came. If they know anything about the story of Christ, they are unclear, they are uncertain as to why did Jesus come, what was his purpose. And verse number 9 reminds us that he came so that he could taste death for every man. Christ came so that he could die on the cross for our sins and for the sins of everyone else. And the world needs to hear that. All right. So that's where we were at last week. We're going to build upon that this evening in a couple of moments. But before we do, let me give you a scenario that probably many of you have experienced at some point in your life to one degree or another. It's hypothetical, and yet I believe it to be very realistic and something I could prove to be true if needed to. I want you to imagine, though, tonight that you are in an airport. If you've ever been in a busy airport, you know that there are people hustling and bustling everywhere, trying to get to where they are supposed to be, making sure they are there in time, and, and all the drama that goes with flying these days. So imagine for just a moment that you are in this airport, there are people all around you hustling and bustling and scurrying to get wherever they need to go, and it eventually comes time for you to board the plane for your particular flight. As you do so, you make your way to your seat, you sit down, you put your stuff wherever it's supposed to go, and as you sit there, here's what happens on many occasions. You get the opportunity to watch all the other people board that same flight, unless you're the last person, which I don't recommend. 
Anyways, you get on the flight or you get on the plane preparing for the flight, and as you are sitting there and you've gotten yourself situated and you've gotten buckled in, other people are filing in and they're finding their places. And, and as this is happening, the stewardess comes over the, the intercom system and says it's going to be a full flight. There will be no empty seats anywhere. So, so sit down, put your stuff where it belongs, and just get ready for a full flight to your destination and so immediately, here's what you know for the next couple of hours at 30,000 feet, you will spend it with X number of people on this particular plane. All that happens, all that takes place, all that comes to a conclusion, and people get up and they go on their way. Now, as all that has happened and as all that has taken place, you know what people on that plane have dealt with, and you know what people in the airport are wrestling with? Fear. Fear. So what in the world are you talking about? I'm talking about this. There are people in every airport awaiting to board a plane that they either know the flight has to take place or it's best that it takes place, but in order to make this flight, or in order to complete this flight, this thing that they're kind of timid about or they have reservation about, here's what they have to deal with. They have to deal with fear. Now, if you think about this for just a moment, here's what we all know, that we don't know who those people are. Because no one walks around declaring, I'm afraid of flying. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. You, you never hear people standing in line saying this, I'm only flying because my husband is making me. You certainly never hear this, I'm only flying because my wife makes me. But I promise you there are men on that flight who are just as fearful of the flight as any woman or child could be. People don't board the plane and, and, and have this sign with them that says, just want you all to know I'm terrified right now. But there are people wrestling with their fears and there are people wrestling with their doubts because it's only normal at 30,000 feet to have some fears or to have some doubts or to wrestle with some kind of emotion that says, you know, if this goes down, I'm a goner. I'm done. There's no walking away from this at 30,000 feet. And, and the most seasoned flyer, the most seasoned traveler, the one who has been in the air multiple, multiple times, there will even be those moments of turbulence and those moments of storm where it will grab their attention. And though they didn't intend to be fearful, though they did not intend to have that moment of anxiety, I can promise you it's happened. Several years ago, I took a flight, and I flew out, I believe it was, on a Tuesday, and the steward person said to me, did you fly yesterday? And I said, no, no, just flying out today. He said, man, yesterday was rough. He said, yesterday was so bad, even the pilots were scared. Because of all the turbulence and because of all the shaking and the bouncing that was taking place on the flights the day prior. 
Now, that didn't calm my nerves a whole lot because guess what? I knew of at least one man, six foot seven, 40 years old, who was scared already to get on the plane. That did not help me any for him to say yesterday even the pilots were scared. Now, I want us to understand something with that little story. Everyone tries to carry themselves at an airport in such a way that you would never assume that these people are scared or anxious or nervous or that they could become scared, nervous, or anxious. But I promise you and I guarantee you, it happens. It happens. Who cares? Well, I understand. I want us to think about this thought. I want us to think about dying. Somebody says, didn't we deal with the thought of dying a, a few weeks ago? Yes, we did. We're not going to rehash most of it, but I want us to think about the, the subject of dying. Here's what we know. Every person is going to die. It's not going to be escaped by anyone outside of the return of Christ. Everyone is going to die. So it doesn't matter how young we are right now. It doesn't matter how vibrant and how alive and how, and how healthy we feel right now. Truth be told, give it enough time. And you know what's going to happen to every one of us? Every one of us are going to die. Now, an individual may not think about their death on a daily basis, and quite frankly, they probably don't need to think about their death on a daily basis. But I would say this, and I think I could prove this to be true if I could get people to be honest, but I think that I could prove that there are people who do look forward to death, not in an excited, anticipatory manner, but they look forward to their death with a sense of fear or a sense of anxiety or a sense of nervousness. But here's the problem. Nobody likes to talk about it. So we wouldn't begin to know who wrestles with it. We don't know what people are wrestling with. We don't know what people are struggling with. We don't know what kind of doubts they are entertaining. We don't know where their thoughts are going when they are left to themselves and, and their imagination and, and their daydreaming and, and just kind of looking ahead as to what the future may look like. Listen, there are people who don't want to be diagnosed with a terminal disease. That, that thought in itself is alarming to them and it scares them. There are people who have these fears. I don't want to end up in a nursing home with my mind gone and me not knowing what's happening around me. That scares me to think about. Now, will you get people tomorrow at work to just come clean with that? that that's a fear of theirs? Probably not. But I'm telling you, there are people who wrestle with those types of fears. There are people who are fearful of dying in accidents. On and on it goes. There are people who are fearful of death, but we don't talk about it. So we don't think about it. But here is what I would be willing to wager a dinner on. And that is, even within our own church, there are people who sometimes think about the subject of death, how it might come upon them, and it caused them to become anxious or nervous or fearful at least from time to time. Yeah. And somebody may say, well, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. Hey, be critical all you want, but it's a fact. Well, that's not very much faith. Well, bless your heart. But there are people who wrestle with that. And this idea of wrestling with death and, 
and, and what it will be like and what will happen afterwards, it, it's nothing new because what we're going to see tonight in the book of Hebrews, what the passage we're about to give some attention to, is that back then there were people wrestling with death, the uncertainty of it, what happens, and so many other things. So tonight I want us to begin looking in verse number 9 where we left off last week. And please know that we're going to skip or skim over a portion of Scripture tonight, not because I don't understand it, but because we could truly be here in this portion of Scripture for the next couple of weeks, and I don't want us to get bogged down. But remember what the author is writing about. He is writing about the death of Christ to a group of people who don't understand why Christ would come and suffer the cross if he is truly higher than the angels who they held in high regard. So notice in verse number 9 he says, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. In verse number 10 it says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now what is the writer declaring? The writer is declaring this, that the suffering was an essential part of the salvation that was made available to men and women through the death of Christ on the cross. Does this make sense? I know that to some of us, this is going to say, you know, seem like old knowledge and, and just very familiar stuff, but this was not old knowledge and familiar information for them. And so he says that the, the sufferings were a part of the process that would bring about the salvation. Now notice in verse number 11, a wonderful, wonderful truth is made known that we're not going to look at, for, for just a, but for just a moment tonight. He says, for both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified are all of one. Question. Who does the sanctifying? Christ. Who are the sanctified? Those of us who are saved. So the writer declares this, that he that sanctifieth, that being Christ, who is? Come on, who is? Come on, who is Christ? We spent a whole sermon on this. Who is Christ? He is God. Come on. For both he that sanctifieth, that being Christ, who is God, and they who are sanctified, that being the believers, are all of one. Who are we all a part of? We are all now a part of the body of Christ, or, or we are all of God. That's a wonderful truth. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf through the sufferings and tasting the death of every man on the cross, now though He is the sanctifier, we who are the sanctified, we are all now a part of God. That does not for a moment place us on the same level as Christ, not for a moment. But what it does is, is in the eyes of God, it allows us to be seen through what Christ has done on our behalf. So in verse number 11, he goes on to say, For which cause he, that being Christ, is not ashamed to call them the sanctified brethren. 
because of our sanctification through the work of Christ, then he, Christ, calls us brethren, and that's not an embarrassment to him. That's a good thing, because we are otherwise embarrassing as individuals. Verse number 12 and 13, he begins to quote scripture from the book of Psalms, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Now in verse number 14, he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. What does that mean? Children are partakers of flesh and blood. It means this. People are made up of flesh and blood. It's pretty profound, isn't it? People are made up of flesh and blood. He says, He also himself likewise took part of the same. He likewise. Who is he? That is Christ. What did Christ do when he came to this earth? He also himself likewise took part of the same, which means Christ, who is above the angels, took on the form of flesh and blood just like you and I. So he says in the verse that he took on the same. Now notice that through death, what kind of a death? A physical death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. What kind of death? Not a physical death, but a spiritual death. That is the devil. Somebody says, this means nothing to me. It may not, but it needs to mean something to us. See, the devil, we have to remember, is Satan. And Satan has been granted many abilities, and for lack of better words, powers especially in the lives of men and women. But something we've got to understand is this, is that Satan has no control over an individual's physical death. He has no control over such. How do we know? Just go back to the book of Job. Whenever Job was going to be afflicted by Satan, what did Satan first have to do? He first had to receive permission from God to even afflict him. And whenever God gave him permission to afflict him, God said, Satan, you can only go this far. And as you know the story, here's what you know, that that is as far as Satan went because Satan had no permission to go any further than that. And whenever Satan came back to God a second time, God said, you can do this, but you cannot touch his life. You cannot take his life. And so what did Satan do? He did everything that he was permitted by God to do, but he was not able to take the physical life of Job. So whenever we read this, whenever it says that he might destroy him that had power of death, he is not talking about Satan's ability to physically destroy someone's life in the manner of death So what we understand then is this, is that through death, that being the physical death of Christ, he might destroy the power of Satan, listen, who has power over the spiritual life of the one who is not saved, who is not yet sanctified. 
Satan and his demons work nonstop around the clock to prevent people from seeing their need of salvation. Anytime a seed is planted, guess what Satan wants to do? Satan wants to make sure that that seed of, of, of sanctification or that seed of the gospel, Satan wants to make sure that that seed receives no kind of, uh, of nourishment, no kind of, of building upon. Satan and his demons don't want anyone to be saved. And so what Satan does is to the best of his power, to the best of his ability, he fights against men and women from coming to know Christ as their Savior, thus being saved and sanctified. Now listen, when a person dies and is not a Christian, when a person is dead and they have never placed their faith in Christ, what the Scripture seems to indicate in this passage is, is the spiritual death they have died has been under the power of the devil, so to speak. This may not be the best explanation of it, but it's the best I can give you tonight, all right? That there is a spiritual power that Satan possesses in the lives of men and women who have never yet been born again. And so here's what, Christ, or what the writer says, that through the death of Christ, through the death of Christ that he might destroy the power of death, the spiritual death of Satan that comes from the devil, that being Satan. Now, it's what I understand it to mean. Verse number 15. He says that in doing this, destroying him that had the power of death, at the same time, here's what it does. It says, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What does it mean to deliver someone? It means to rescue them. It means to save them. So as a result of Christ suffering on the cross, tasting death for every man, so that he might sanctify men and women... Those who are now saved, as he has died a physical death, he has destroyed the power of death, which is the devil, and in doing so, he has delivered, he has rescued, or he has saved them who, through fear of death, were for a lifetime, or were all their lifetime, subject or under the oppression of bondage. You know what the writer is declaring? The writer is declaring that there had been men and women who their entire lives lived under the oppression of the bondage of death. Why would you live under the oppression? Why would you live your life subject to this fear of death? Why would you do that? Because they did not know what happened to an individual upon their death. How many of us remember the Apostle Paul's letter to the Thessalonian believers? I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. 
1 Thessalonians. You remember this? It's not that he's trying to insult them and saying that he doesn't want them to be ignorant. But, but what Paul is understanding is this, and what Paul is addressing is this. I know that for so many years you have not understood fully and completely what happens after a person passes away. You don't understand what's going to happen in the next step of things or in the next phase of things. You don't understand. So I want you to be aware of this. Think about it, please, for just a moment again. From the perspective of a Jew, they did not have the information and the knowledge and the understanding that we have. And under the system of the Pharisees, they knew nothing of grace, they knew nothing of mercy, they knew nothing of kindness. Everything by way of the religious system for the Jews was works, 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 works. And when you come to the end of your life, eh, We don't know for sure, and we're just going to hope for the best. Now, I don't have any idea why they'd be fearful. I mean, it's death for crying out loud. That's why you would be fearful. We don't know what happens. But the writer of Hebrews declares to these Jews... Understand, please, summarizing this and trying to get us somewhere. Understand, please, Jews, Christ came so that he could die and taste death for every man. Upon doing this, sanctification has now been made available to everyone, in part because we know that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As the sanctification and the salvation process has taken place and and the sanctification we know will continue to take place, he says this, that you need to understand that as Christ took on flesh and blood and as he died this physical death, he destroyed him that had the power of death, which is the devil, and in doing so, he has saved and delivered and rescued everyone from this fear they have had all their lifetime and this fear that they have lived under by way of bondage, this fear of dying. What is the writer saying? He's saying this, you do not have to fear death. You don't have to. It's big, it's ugly, it's violent sometimes, it's not pretty sometimes. I mean, death can be a horrible, horrible experience. Any honest person knows this. But the writer reminds them, you do not, you do not have to fear death if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now this evening I'm going to say in part what I said last week, and I just want to say and run through this very quickly, but I want to remind us that the scripture given to us, or that we're reading from tonight, was given to Jews some 2,000 years ago. It was not intended for Americans tonight in 2016. That being said, you cannot deny certain principles and certain parallels, can you not? They say, well, I don't even know. I, I, I mean this, then, if you're not sure as to what I'm talking about. We live in a culture that seems to be ignorant as to what happens after death. They really don't have an awareness, it seems, or an understanding 
of what happens after death. I mean, some are of the mindset, some are of the opinion. Well, I mean, you go off into this state, or maybe you enter into this, or it might be that you enter into this, or it might be that you're just done and your soul is annihilated and you're destroyed, and that's the end of it. I mean, there are so many thoughts and so many viewpoints out there that people are ignorant of the subject of death and what happens. For so many who have religious association, you know what they know nothing of? They know nothing of the grace of God. They know nothing of the mercy of God. They know nothing of the goodness of God and the kindness of God. Because they don't even know why Jesus Christ came, which was to taste death for every man. And so there are so many people and their entire basis of faith is not in grace, but rather in their works, just like the Jews. I need to be a good person. I need to try to be a good individual here. I, I need to be honest. I, I need to be kind. I need to be charitable. I need to be, I need to be this. I need to not be this. I need to not be this. And I need to not be this. And all these things are good and all these things are right. But, but what is the person placing all of their faith and all of their trust and confidence in? They are placing it in their own works and not the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on Calvary. And so we have men and women and even children today who are completely ignorant and unlearned about what the Scripture says or in, re- in regard to what the Scripture says about death and what happens. And so it, it's so much based on works. And if you talk to people, many times you'll hear something like this. I'm just trying to be a good person and trust that that will be enough in the end. That's not the way it's supposed to be done in any person's life. And so what does the message of the gospel do? What does the message of, of, of Christ and why he, came to, uh, why he came, what does that do in the life of a person? It reminds them that if you have been sanctified... If you have been set apart, if you are a child of God, you can be delivered. You can be set free from the fear and the bondage and the oppression that death brings to the lives of so many people by way of fear. Did I say that right? You can be free from that fear of death that binds and oppresses people. Now, there's a twofold purpose in this message, okay? And I, I just want to deal with them very briefly and then we'll be done, okay? Twofold purpose in this thought. We need to be able to tell someone out there, you don't need to fear death. I mean, how, how, 
how can I not fear death? I mean, it's a scary thing. Oh, listen, I understand it can be kind of nerve-wracking. I get it. But it doesn't have to be. Well, how can it not be scary for me? How do I not need to live in in some kind of fear of this? I mean, I want to be ready. How is it that I don't have to be afraid? By recognizing that Jesus Christ is God. I'm just going to interrupt myself real quick. Isn't this amazing? And I don't know why it surprises me sometimes, but isn't it amazing how wondrous the Word is and how it just all ties together? Okay. I don't know. Think about what we've just dealt with in the last four weeks. Okay, This is truly amazing. How can I go through life not being somewhat fearful of death? I mean, I don't want to go like my dad or mom did. I don't want to die in a nursing home. I mean, how can I not be scared of that? Okay, remember that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you need to give earnest heed to the things that He has said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but my me. Give earnest heed to that and then recognize today why Christ came. He came so that through His physical death, He could destroy the power of death, which is the devil. He could destroy that and He can set you free through salvation, through sanctification. He can set you free to where you don't have to worry. We need to be able to tell that to a lost and dying world who is fearful of death. The second reason, or the second point that I I think this message serves, would be this. You and I don't know what fears people in this church deal with. Oh, brother Kyle, I mean, come on. Are you. Hold on, hold on. Yes. You don't know what fears people in this church wrestle with. We don't know what's going through their mind when they lay their head on their pillow at night. We don't know what's going through their mind when they drive down the road and, and are doing their, you know, their, their errands, whatever it may be. We don't know what people are wrestling with even within this church. And listen, Satan would love to oppress the believers with this bondage of fear as it relates to their death. Because if Satan has no control over their spiritual eternity, he at least would love to make their days on this earth miserable by gripping them with fear of the unknown of the future. And so a second point and a second thought in in all this would be to remind those of us who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ that we do not need to fear death. Now, I, I can't make you not fear death. If you're one who in, in your mind sitting here right now, you'd have to say, you know what, sometimes I struggle with that, sometimes I wrestle with that. I cannot make you not fear death. But I can tell you what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says that He through death destroyed Him that had the power of death, that being the devil. You and I can be delivered from that fear if that fear is something we wrestle with and are oppressed by. 
somebody may say something like this. Well, Brother Kyle, I mean, that, that's, just, that's just a lack of faith on their part if they've got fear. Thank you. God bless you and your great faith. Some people have fears. If you want to get all excited about what they get hung up on, we'll get all excited about what you get hung up on. Well, brother, no, no, hold on. I'm just saying some people wrestle with this. Whether they should or not, they do. And so there needs to be a measure of grace extended to someone who may wrestle with that. But, but I want to remind us tonight, if we are a child of God, if we are a believer, we have no cause to fear. We have no cause to be fearful because Christ took care of that the day he died on the cross and the day that he saved us. I read a thought this week. It's not an exact quote, but I just want to share it with us real quick, and then we're done. The thought was this, is that God does not give us the grace we need to die until it's our time to die. God gives us the grace we need to live. And when it is our time to die, God will give us the grace we need at that moment. Why not before? Because I don't need it yet. I don't need that grace and that mercy and that kindness until I am on the precipice or until I am on the edge of death. So here is what I can know. Here is what any saved person can know. I don't have to fear death. Isn't it nice when your fears are eliminated? Isn't it nice when your fears are alleviated? It's like when that plane finally lands. And it's like, <sighs> we made it and I'm still alive. It's a wonderful feeling. It's wonderful to know that tonight I don't have to be afraid. And it's wonderful to know that if this week we get the diagnosis, if this week something terrible happens, if this week something unforeseen takes place in our life, it is wonderful to know that if I have been made right with the one whom, whom died to save me, if I've been made right with him, it's not about my works, it's not about anything I have done, it is everything he has done for me, and no fear whatsoever needs to oppress me. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. Let's all stand this evening and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening, Lord, it is true. Reminded of it this week in studying, it is so true how wondrous your word is. God, it is amazing, it is wonderful, it is overwhelming.